Welcome, everybody. My name is Philippa Kelly, sitting in in Sydney, Australia, for David Latulipe this afternoon, and it's just a thrill to to introduce to you this afternoon four amazing segments: Molly Rose Williams, Left Coast Chamber Ensemble, SF Recovery Theatre, and the Edwardian Ball. So we will be right back with you after the BBC News. Hello, I'm Roisin Hasty with the BBC News. The president of Ecuador, Daniel Noboa, has said that his country is in a state of war after the deadly attacks, kidnappings and prison riots that shocked the country in the past few days. Mr Noboa has said members of the criminal gangs responsible for the violence will be treated like terrorists. Will Grant explains the president's response. His argument is that what's happened, this sort of wave of of criminality and this wave of drug-related violence, isn't an accident. Rather, it's in response to the the harder policies he was taking within prisons, trying to break up gangs uh, and trying to make prison conditions harsher. Um, I think there are a lot of people who would say that there was some indication that something terrible was going to happen in Ecuador because this uh, violence has just been building and building. Nevertheless, they didn't expect it to be quite so large and quite so coordinated, apparently coordinated, across the country. The UN's mission in Somalia says one of its contracted helicopters was conducting a medical evacuation when it was involved in an incident. It comes after reports from local officials and media that around eight passengers and crew are being held by the armed Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab. And Soy reports. The United Nations mission in Somalia has confirmed that an aviation incident involving a UN-contracted helicopter occurred in Galmudug in central Somalia. The mission made no mention of the passengers and crew, but local sources told the BBC around eight people, most of whom are foreigners, were on board the aircraft. It is thought that they are being held by Al-Shabaab. Somali government forces have intensified their fight against the militants in recent months. The helicopter is reported to have been heading to a town called Whistle, near one of the front lines. The UN Security Council has approved a resolution demanding an immediate end to attacks on ships in the Red Sea by Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. A key provision detailed the right of UN member states to defend their shipping vessels. The senior Republican Chris Christie has dropped out of the race to be the party's nominee to challenge President Joe Biden in November's US election. Mr Christie told supporters it was clear that there was not a path for him to win. Here's Will Vernon. Chris Christie was the anti-Trump candidate, really the only anti-Trump candidate. And ever since he launched his campaign last year, you kind of got the impression that perhaps um, he was running more out of a sense of duty, really, as opposed to any genuine chances of winning. And that's because the other candidates, the other Republican candidates in that primary race, have more or less refused completely to kind of robustly criticise Trump on the campaign trail. World News from the BBC. 
A judge in the United States has rejected a prisoner's request to halt what would be America's first execution using nitrogen gas. Kenneth Eugene, a convicted murderer, is scheduled to be put to death in Alabama later this month. His lawyers and the United Nations have condemned the untested method as cruel. An Austrian heiress is setting up a group of citizens to decide how to give away much of her fortune. Marlene Engelhorn, who lives in Vienna, has sent out invitations to 10,000 members of the public. Of those interested in taking part, 50 will be chosen to help work out how more than $21 million should be redistributed. Researchers have used ancient DNA to shed new light on why immune diseases such as multiple sclerosis are twice as common in people from northern Europe compared with the south. They spent more than a decade on the study. Our correspondent, Philippa Roxby, has the details. Copenhagen, Cambridge and Oxford University experts discovered that a nomadic people called the Yamnaya, who migrated west across Europe 5,000 years ago, introduced the MS risk gene. They were tall and strong, and the gene was an advantage, helping protect them against animal diseases. However, modern lifestyles have changed the focus of our immune systems because we don't live as close to wild animals anymore. The researchers say the genetic traits inherited from the Yamnaya now make northern Europeans more susceptible to diseases where the immune system attacks the body rather than protecting it, like MS. New research suggests the largest ever species of great ape went extinct because of climate change. Scientists say the huge primates called Gigantopithecus blackies struggled to find food during more frequent dry seasons. They were so heavy they couldn't swing from trees, leaving them unable to reach their favourite fruits. BBC News. everybody, this is Philippa Kelly, resident dramaturg for California Shakespeare Theatre, sitting in today for David Latulipe. And you've been listening to an excerpt from Molly Rose Williams in her upcoming solo dance comedy show Crush at No Space in Mariposa Street, San Francisco. And she will be performing January the 19th to 21st and 25th to 27th at 7.30pm. Welcome, Molly Rose. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. It's a thrill to have you. And you, I know, are a Berkeley native. And I also know that Crush was created and performed by you, part love letter, 
part absurdist caper and part cultural satire, Crush is also a solo dance comedy show for anyone who's ever had a crush. And the audience is asked to come and relive the most agonizingly slash heartbreakingly slash ecstatically slash disorientingly um, excruciating moments of their lives. Molly, um, this may not be interesting to anybody, but my first crush was on Kimber the White Lion, who was a little Japanese cartoon lion created for children's TV. I loved that lion with a passion and I wanted to marry him. Wow. <laughs> very first crush in mind when you created this show. I think I was thinking more of the crush that I had at the time. It's I would say the final show has become sort of a composite of a lot of different crushes over the course of my life. Um, but when I first started creating the show, I was creating it because I had started falling in love with someone and it was so intense that I had to do something about it. So it was the first week that I told her I had a crush on her that I went into the studio and started making the show. And then over the course of our relationship, I continued to build the show slowly over time. And the first premiere um, of the show was two weeks after we broke up. So it encompasses that entire relationship. And then over the course of having created the show and performed many times now it has broadened and it's not quite as autobiographical as it was right at the beginning oh interesting because i know it was actually first premiered in uh, at the end of 22 so that's um just a little over a year ago um well let's hear a little bit more from crush we used to hide under the play structure and kiss at lunchtime he was a twin we were nine. I don't remember her name, but I remember that we held hands a lot. I just was thinking about him constantly to the point where I actually told my husband, I was like, I, I just have such a big crush on him. I can't stop thinking about him. I can't stop. And my husband was like, maybe you should talk about this with one of your girlfriends and not with me. <laughs> Having a crush is like being obsessed. It's like... Time goes really fast and really slow a split between feeling kind of obsessed and really scared it's like i know she's cute and funny but i also know that's true of other people and what i don't really know is why the cute and the funny feels so intense in my belly and in my chest it's like remembering that I'm not asexual. Hey, Mal. <laughs> um, for those of you in the audience, uh, the person who I'm going to talk about having a crush on is Molly, who's the person you're watching. You cannot stop imagining. Yeah, so so I, I met... When I met Molly... <laughs> it's like I want to whisper about it. It's like one of those dreams where you're in a room full of people and all of a sudden you realize you're naked. And for some reason, your first reaction is, yeah, feels like something. So everybody, that was a little excerpt from Crush. And Molly, you might not know this about me, but I'm actually um, a, a Shakespeare scholar, author, writer, teacher. And Shakespeare always thinks of a crush 
as akin to passion, which is perilously close to death. Do you have any thoughts about that? I love that perspective. I I think that is how a crush can feel sometimes, is perilously close to death, which is excruciatingly exciting and terrifying and the the closest to life you can get to. Um, I think that was why I started making this show is, is because the crush that I had at the time was so intense. I didn't totally know what to do with it. And it's been really fun working on the show and performing it and hearing from people afterwards, how much it resonates and people telling me stories Yeah, of crushes where it feels like you might die. You're so excited. (laughs) I love that. Um, And and I see also that you are not only a Berkeley native, but you are also a perfectionist. Um, Could you talk about the way that humour works for you? Because when I think of perfection, I think of humour as something that that can slice its way into a perfectionist mentality so that one is able to kind of um, just um, from being so... um, incredibly focused to suddenly let it all go. Mm, Definitely. I think my perfectionist tendencies, I mean, part of what you heard just there, that montage um, was something that I created. I put out a call to friends and family and by word of mouth and got people to submit stories about times that they'd had a crush um, or times that they'd fallen in love. And then I also work as a podcast producer for a medical storytelling podcast called The Nocturnists. And I put together that crush montage based on those audio clips. And I think the perfectionist tendency in me is something that I've developed a lot in that particular role because I work as an audio editor. And you have to be so attuned to just the tiny nuances in timing and um, in, in even tone of voice in how to portray certain stories through audio and and that role and sort of practicing that editing role is something that then I've applied in my performance work as well of doing a thing over and over and over and over and trying it with my hand here or my hand there or slightly shifting the speed or the rhythm in order to get it to the place that I like it. And I would say that humor is both a tool that I use as a way to lighten that mood a little bit and I laugh at myself a lot in the studio when I'm working, but I also would say, I think humor on stage is something that benefits from a perfectionist mindset because something that's funny the first time might not be funny the second time or the third time. And ideally in this show, I've worked things over and over and over. I want to get down to the science of what makes this funny. So it, it doesn't rely on chance that every yeah. time I do the show, that moment is going to be funny because I actually, I, I think humor has mechanics to a certain extent. And if you understand the rhythm behind why is this moment funny and you can nail it every time, that is a really satisfying thing for me, both as a perfectionist and as a clown. Yes. And that's right. You also, with your twin sister, have, um, have clowning training. Well, and, and I'd say everybody as well, please go to that show because a, a, a show like that, well, any show, but particularly a comedy show is, and one that's got poignancy as you remember your own first crush. It's going to be different every night. Um, 
in interaction or collaboration with the audience January 19 to 21 and 25th to 27th at 7.30pm, no space on Mariposa Street. And let's close out with um, a reprise of Love is in the Air vocally from Molly. And thank you so much for joining us today, Molly. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Love is in the air Everywhere I look around Love is in the air Every sight and every sound And I don't know if I'm being foolish Don't know if I'm being wise But it's something that I must believe in And it's there when I look in your eyes Love is in the air In the whisper of the tree Love is in the air In the thunder of the sea And I don't know if I'm just dreaming Don't know if I feel sick But it's something that I must believe in And it's there when you call out my name So again, that was was Molly Williams um, with Love is in the Air. And now I'm thrilled to welcome Matilda Hoffman, Jerome Simas, and Jonathan Russell from the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. And they have a show coming up on Sunday, January the 21st at 4 p.m. at the First Church of Christ Scientist um, on Dwight Way in Berkeley and also Monday, January the 22nd, that's in about a week's time, at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Welcome, Matilda, Jerome and Jonathan. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And I was actually looking last night. I thought you might have at some point performed with my husband, Paul Drescher, but I, I couldn't see anything online. Anyway. I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, you were founded in 1992, and so now it's your 31st season. And just to let our listeners know that this is a consortium of 16 San Francisco Bay Area classical musicians who work as a collective of artists who value the very best things about the production of music, integrity, quality, inclusion, service to the community, and, of course, the most important thing, curiosity. So what I love about how you approach 
uh, music is that you center the music of our time in dialogue with the musical influences of the past. And so, of course, in this concert, you're featuring Brahms. Matilda, the artistic director, was educated at Cambridge University, the Royal Academy of Music, as actually a viola uh, performer, and the Eastman School of Music in conducting. So she basically does everything. And I believe you're featuring more than 20 different Californian composers this season. So Matilda, could I begin with you? Um, might you talk a little bit about um, how you came to this organisation from, from England? Yes, and thank you so much um, for having us on the show, Philippa. We're so excited to be um, performing this concert in a couple of weeks. Um, when I came out to California, um, I gradually connected with musicians in um, in the Bay Area, and I just uh, realized that the musicians at Left Coast Chamber Ensemble were my natural home. Um, I feel like... Music making at its best is chamber music and um, chamber music in many different combinations and exploring, um, as you say, music from the past and connecting it with music of today, which is something I'm also really passionate about, is um, something that was um, the most important thing for Left Coast too. So it just felt like a natural, natural fit. And and could I ask... Um, how did you, um, so you've selected 20 different composers from over the last hundred years. Did that, did that have a long lead time? Well, interesting. Yes. I'm the, um, this is my first year as, uh, um, artistic director of the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. So this first, this year came into being relatively quickly. Um, but it was an exciting year for me because, um, we have, particularly focusing on um, composers of California. So um, we presented a huge array of different Californian composers um, right from the 1890s um, to the present day um, in our November concerts. And we're continuing um, to um, support that mission of um, encouraging younger composers as well through our Pathways program, which is going to be later in our season. So one of the pieces that will be on our concert in January in, uh, some little miniatures by um, a California composer called Josiah Catalan, and he will also be mentoring some younger composers that we're going to be supporting in, in our June concert. So I, I hope there's like a connection between all the different generations of composers, and that's something that um, connects the season together. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I should actually say at that, at this point, um, for younger composers who want to get in touch with Matilda, go to www.sfrecoverytheatre.org. Um, but I want to introduce Jonathan Russell, who's actually one of the composers in this program. Welcome, Jonathan. And Jonathan um, is a clarinetist. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this organisation? Um, yes, sure. So I had I had composed this piece called On Sorrow for Bass Clarinet and String Quartet. And um, I, I knew of Left Coast Ensemble because I lived in the Bay Area um, for many years, from about 2001 to 2009. And I got to many of their concerts, and I, I always enjoyed their work. 
And um, this particular piece I had written, um, I, I when I as I was writing it, I felt there was a strong connection between it and the Brahms clarinet quintet, which is a piece that's very important in my own life for, for reasons I can get into later if if there's time. Um, so when I had written this piece, um, even as I was writing it, I always thought it would be really effective on a program with the Brahms clarinet quintet. And so when I was trying to think, you know, who might I pitch this idea to, you know, Left Coast was a very natural um, organization to think of because because of their mission of pairing older pieces with newer pieces that relate to them in some way. So I, th- I think I initially sent it to Jerry because um, I've, I've known Jerry through various clarinet and bass clarinet connections over the years um, as, as this idea that, that perhaps it could be programmed along with the, with the Brahms clarinet quintet. Yes, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. And so then can we go to Jerry or Jerome? Um, Jerry, could you say a little bit about, um, about your, um, your role as a, um, as a, as a um, part of this ensemble? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So this is actually my 24th season as the resident clarinetist with the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. And like Matilda, um, there's always something about the fit for me as a performing artist that has always felt very organic um, with this group. For instance, working with composers like Jonathan, while also, you know, honoring the master composers of from days bygone. And... um, I we did a program last season called Clarinet Party, which was a lot of fun, and it was sort of a, a potpourri of different clarinet pieces and styles. And uh, um, this year, I wanted to do something similar. But um, when Jonathan showed me this piece that he wrote called On Sorrow, and mentioned that it was you know very much um, that the Brahms Quintet was on his mind as he was writing this. Um, I was very excited to revisit the Brahms. Um, this is a piece I've done several times with the Left Coast Ensemble. And um, it's it's late Brahms. I mean, most you ask any chamber music lover, and they're really going to probably put the Brahms clarinet quintet in their top ten. It's, it's really an important work. It's sublimely beautiful. It's late Brahms. It's autumnal. Um, and then I also looked at Jonathan's score and one of my dear friends in the Bay area is Jeff Anderley. He's one of the pioneers of bass clarinet as a solo instrument along with Jonathan himself. And the two of them play in a chamber group called Squonk, which is a clarinet, bass clarinet duo. And so I immediately thought that this connection, um, with Jonathan and Jeff would be a nice way to bring all of these elements together in a concert. So I'm choosing to focus on the Brahms um, and put my clarinet hat on. I'm actually the bass clarinetist with the San Francisco Symphony, so I do play primarily bass clarinet um, with that ensemble. Um, but now I just felt like I wanted to get back to some of my more um, soprano clarinet roots and revisit an old master. Now, you know, the last time I did it, my... My hair was dark brown. Now I got a lot of gray hair. So what does it mean to revisit this piece, having been through a pandemic as a performing artist and and the connection to Jonathan's piece on sorrow? What have we all been through? Um, And and what does it mean moving forward um, now that we're back on the stage? So lots of really wonderful connections there. 
I, I love that thought, Jerry. And also when you mentioned uh, moving from brown hair to gray hair and then the idea of late Brahms, um, I've been thinking a lot lately being in Australia, going to see my um, very aged mother, that one of the problems about, about age in our society or certainly Western society is the idea of redundancy that accompanies age. And I love the thought that we can talk about late Brahms, the idea of your life not being a trajectory towards some dismal ending. And so let's everybody take a listen to the Brahms that will be featured. But I do just want to say I so wish that we had longer. And I'm just going to ask, Jerry, do you have one last thing you would like to say? Um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to presenting this music for our um, dedicated left coast audiences. And um, it's a it's a real privilege to play this music. It can feel very daunting um, revisiting, you know, we could call the Brahms clarinet quintet something of a war horse. And but really the goal as a performing artist is to bring your own voice to something um and and hit play and let it go see how it see how it comes out um but uh i've been playing with these musicians for two decades now and it's just it's a real privilege and an honor to revisit this music great and then um sunday january the 21st at 4 p.m. in Berkeley at the First Church of First Church of Christ Scientist, and then Monday, January the 22nd, 7:30 p.m. at the San Francisco Conservative of Mu- Conservatory of Music. Jerry, what's the best way to get tickets? I'm going to turn that one over to Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> That's more her area. <laughs> Go to our website at uh, leftcoastensemble.org and we look forward to seeing you at the concerts. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Wonderful. And can you show up at the door? Yes. Wonderful. So let's hear a little bit as we close out. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on, on the arts. Thank you so our much. Our pleasure. For thank us. you very much. Thanks a lot. Everybody, welcome back to On the Arts after that beautiful excerpt from Brahms, Brahms from the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. 
And now we're going to leap to an event where you don't need to get tickets because the tickets are, or you don't need to buy tickets ahead because the tickets are all free, but you do need to know where to go to the um, San Francisco Jazz Center in Franklin Street. It's free of charge on January the 14th, and it's the Recovery Theatre presenting A Night at the Black Hawk. Let's go immediately in to hear a little taster from that show. Woke up this morning, looking around for my shoe. Look like I got them old, oh, walking blues for now. Woke up this morning, looking around. Welcome back, everybody. And that was a wonderful excerpt from A Night at the Black Hawk, Keep Dreams Alive, the 25-year celebration of the SF recovery event. Um, and today I welcome Paula West, Jeffrey Greer, and Spencer Bearfield. Uh, Paula, I'm a little bit in awe of having you here because I read a piece about you in um, the New Yorker in 2022, I think it was. And the writer no, just was. Just last year, 2020. Yeah, 2022, yeah. the very yeah. end, yes. And the writer said um, that the milestone that uh, that this was was just um, amazing because the album is something that that writer plays again and again. And it said um, something like, this album by Paula West remains as dazzling as it ever was 25 years ago. So thank you for joining us today. Could you talk about your role in this particular show at the Recovery Theatre, Paula? Well, my role, I'm going to be with uh, other performers, uh, making a contribution, bringing their gifts to the stage uh, for a great cause. And I, I did it for the first time last year. And it was really moving because I felt that there were so many great spirits in the room that uh, just the camaraderie and everybody just joining together, bringing their gifts and presenting what they want to share on the stage. And I, I will do a couple of tunes and we'll do, you know, tunes from mostly standards or blues. And I, I haven't quite picked out what I'm going to do yet, but it's just a lovely, lovely evening. Wonderful. And just before I, I move on to, to Spencer and Jeffrey, Paula, could you tell our audience where to get a hold of that album um, that the New Yorker was raving about? Yeah, I don't have physical copies right now. We want to actually try to bring that back again. Actually, I'd love to put it out in an LP form. But you can get it, you know, iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, you know, the, the regular, the usual suspects for getting things online, but definitely iTunes. Yes, and everybody, just so you know, the album by Paula West is called Temptation. Yes. Uh, 
So just so everybody knows. So, um, Jeffrey, could you talk about how you came to this mission? So basically, the recovery theatre is made um, for everybody, wherever they are, on the journey to recovery. And I, I love that thought that um, that recovery isn't something that, uh, you know, I, my favourite Shakespeare play, of course, is King Lear. And Lear does not move from, um, from, from wellness to decay to recovery. He moves all along that trajectory, steps forward and then falls back. And so I, I love thinking about that kind of the complexity of that trajectory in life. Could you talk a little bit about your um, how that mission evolved for this event? Well, uh, hopefully you can hear me well. Yes. Uh, and uh, my name is Jeffrey Greer. I am the director of San Francisco Recovery Theater. Um, and our mission or our message is recovery is really nothing more than discovery. We are all in a change state. We are all in the process of change, evolution, and uh, and moving to a another place in life or in our continuum. So a lot of times when people uh, hear recovery, they get fearful and, oh, my goodness, they're going to have a junkie parade. I don't I like that. That's not, that's not it. It's, it. We are all in a process of change. And um, so uh, when we first started over 25 years ago, um, we started, uh, you know, basically with uh, at the helm of uh, Cecil Williams. A lot of people I met were with Cecil Williams, even the, the, the crack pandemic. And it became clear that there was another way in which to communicate. Um, this message, a lot of uh, people do not use a traditional method of uh, communication. You know, they're not necessarily academically trained. And so the opportunity to participate through any medium that they have at their disposal or our disposal, let me change that. It's our disposal is what is used. And we will use theater, drama, uh, music, uh, you know, writing, literary, it's, it's essential to have our writers. So this, this mission started over 25 years ago. Probably we could go way, way back. We have roots that are connected to the Black Arts Movement. Um, and as Paula said, uh, we are blessed to have her. Uh, other winners, uh, Spencer Barefield. Um, we've got some uh, other Grammy and uh, uh, award-winning artists that will surprise us. Um, now, uh, to further get to this, uh, I must first say that uh, the tickets are completely sold out. we got a sold-out house at the Jazz Center. However, we will be streaming it live. Uh, I will make sure that um, I get uh, KALW, the link, so they can send it out to, to people. We want people to participate. Uh, we feel that there's no fourth wall. We don't draw a line between the audience and the artist. Uh, that we are all in this house together and all on this mission together, which is um, basically the topic of what we're talking about. So I think it's essential that we always marry people who have been on stage and who have not been on stage and have the opportunity to interface 
with various mediums of communication so that we all have a clear understanding. It's quite obvious that uh, this is an issue in, in, the, in the world today. Uh, so we at Recovery Theater prefer to stay in our lane and have an opportunity to play and enjoy each other. It is a very moving experience, as Paula said. We have this, this chance to embrace each other spiritually, physically, and uh, mentally uh, through our various communicative methods. And Recovery Theater has chosen this. We've uh, finally gotten to a point where we can take it to a, a, a more visible platform and people can see what we're doing. Uh, hopefully next year, if we get proper funding, we will be in the big house, as they say. We'll have a bigger a bigger stage, a bigger audience, and y'all of you can come and we can have people that are live and we can have four or 500 people in one room. But right now, this is what we've got. This is what we're doing. And through the uh, miracle of technology, we are going to broadcast to the entire world what we do and give everybody oh, an opportunity. That's fantastic, Jeffrey. And I will just say or share that um, when I was first doing a fellowship in Berkeley, I, w- I was going through a dreadful time in my life and I used to go to Glide and and listen to Cecil. Janice was still alive then and yeah. I would cry my whole way through because he said things like, you know, we are, you might not know each other, but we are all your true community and it was so comforting so don't go to the the, uh, event everybody because you can't get in but it will be streamed live we will send you the link so just keep open the 14th of january this so basically in about um what a couple of days time um to 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 um be able to participate online in that event and spencer um i'm just wondering what whether you might say something about the event um well it's just a pleasure for me to be here um i'm from detroit and uh i grew up with uh jeffrey and his brother david who we were listening to sing the blues at the beginning of the segment and um uh you know i've uh, toured the world and and uh played with lots of very important people who i won't bother to list but um yeah you know i just really enjoy doing this we uh the clip that we started with was recorded about 10 years ago performing with the san francisco recovery theater and i was playing on that and jeffrey's brother david allen was also uh playing his slide guitar and singing and um you know it was real inspirational in recognizing um the community and and the the situation that you have uh in that part of town where the black uh am i saying it right the black hawk theater yes yes black hawk and the tenderloin area and the homelessness and and uh you know the the substance pandemic and um you know it's just was a wonderful thing that he was doing getting these musicians um you know where some uh, the recovery musicians and bringing in uh some 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 established artists to perform with them and um you know the it's uh, just a beautiful experience 
uh, you know, that putting source. that music together and in performing for the audiences that he chooses to serve. Yeah, I love that. I was reading about you two last night in Detroit and just everybody on this earth, we are all born, we will all die, even though we think we may not, we will, and we are all surely as important as each other. And so let's close out with another little inspiring clip from this upcoming event. And thank you so much, the three of you, for joining us today. I'm thank so you. excited to watch it online. Thank Absolutely. You. Thanks. Sunny, yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sunny, you smiled at me and really, really is a pain. Now the dark days are gone and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. was a wonderful excerpt from A Night at the Black Hawk. Please keep your computers open so you can join in this event online on the 14th. And our last segment for the day is an extraordinary event. I don't think I've ever read about anything quite like it. The Edwardian Ball to 2024 in the Regency Ballroom at 1300 Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco, Friday, January the 26th, 8 p.m., uh, with a reprise on Saturday, January the 27th at 8 p.m. Now, you can purchase tickets here at um, www.edwardianball.com. Now, um, the Edwardian Ball is described as an elegant and whimsical celebration of art, music, theatre, fashion, technology, circus, and the beloved creations of the author and illustrator Edward Gorey. So it's set in an, a reimagined Edwardian era, this multi-city, multimedia extravaganza, which has basically grown over the past 23 years from an underground club party into an internationally famous festival of the arts, now operating with the blessing of the Edward Gorey Charitable Trust. It'll feature two nights of exhibitions, music and acrobatic performances 
and make sure you dress up accordingly. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Justin Katz and Mike Gaines to talk about the Edwardian Ball. Welcome to you both. So, Justin, would you like to lift us off with a little bit about um, about the, the 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 inspiration for this ball? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, as you mentioned, we're coming into our twenty third year of this event in San Francisco. Um, it was originally inspired by an Edward Gorey book uh, casually left on a bar in the middle of a remote desert. And uh, the the people carousing around said bar said, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to throw an event celebrating this author's stories and illustrations? Um, we had the perfect storm of a band called Rosin Coven, that was ready to uh, play, score, and enact the story, and a club owner who had a um, south-of-market cat club ready to uh, give this a try, and we kicked it off there with a couple of hundred people in um, beautiful and whimsical Edwardian costumes, a uh, nice play on our patron saint, Edward Gorey, and um, we have developed it uh, year by year, um, from its humble origins of a book and a slideshow, uh, into the festival that you are describing um, now. What an amazing event! And and um, I wish everybody could also see Mike because he has dressed in a non-Edwardian state, uh, state, but um, with certainly a very glamorous cap for this radio event today. Mike, could you say a little about your involvement with the event? And not describe my cap, yeah. Okay, <laughs> thanks. I dress just for you, Philippe. But thank you so much for having us. It's been an honor to be on this panel of amazing guests uh, preceding us. Um, and uh, your question again, I'm sorry. Oh, just about your involvement with the event. Oh, wonderful. Um, well, as Justin uh, spoke of the origins of the bomb, um, we joined, uh, I think, on year number three, was it Justin? Year number three, that uh, my wife and I, um, she, the choreographer, and I, the director of a circus company, Vaudevere Society. And that circus company, like chocolate and peanut butter, hooked up with Rosin Coven to embellish their um, you know, prior uh, ideas of uh, reenacting uh, a different story from Gory every year. So we joined and just gave a little a circus theater to the mix, and we've been embellishing it with a different, an homage to Gory every year. The event is based upon a Gory illustration. And so we take that illustration and with orchestra and music, and I mean orchestra and uh, circus and performance and theater and fashion, uh, we uh, put it on stage. And... Um, if you're familiar with Gory's work, it really, he doesn't have much of an arc to the narration. Um, in fact, he calls his, his literary side of his work, he calls it literary nonsense. So uh, you know, with uh, nonlinear 
um, narration. And so it really is a challenge, I think, every year to take his illustrated stories and bring those to life in an entertaining, uh, dynamic, entertaining way. So it's a challenge every year and that we've embraced for the past 20, 22 years. That's fascinating. And everybody, for our listeners, there is ballroom dancing, there is live music, riveting stage shows, DJs dancing, fine art installations, a vendor bazaar, so bring your money, mystical and nonsensical oddities, absinthe cocktails, steam machinery, parlor games, sideshows. So do these events happen consecutively or are there parts of the San Francisco ballroom that um, are devoted uh, to them going on at the same time? Could one of you speak to that? What, what we love to say is that, you know, for these nights at the Edwardian Ball, there is no doors and then show. It all begins when you step through, even when you just show up and you're in line with these other Edwardians in fantastical outfits, costumes, and characters. And when you come into the Edwardian Ball, it is all happening at once. There's three levels of the historic Regency Ballroom that provide different environments um, immersive experiences. You can watch a big stage show. You can watch the can-can dancers. You can find a quiet corner for a tarot reading. You can go downstairs into the vendor bazaar. And the fact that it is all happening at once and also being co-created by those who are there, really, like Mike and I like to always say that what we put on the stage is just a piece of the puzzle and the people are bringing the rest. And the wonderful thing is when you have all of that happening at once, you can have five different people tell five completely different stories of what happened that night or a hundred or a thousand different people um, have different experiences because you can wander and discover and create um, throughout this, this world. That's incredible. And your wife, Shannon, works on this with you, doesn't she? Yes, um, Mike's wife Shannon is uh, the chore- yes, a choreographer. Sorry, That's fine. A uh, choreographer of Vaudeville is my wife of thirty-four years, and um, and we've been we do a lot of events around San Francisco. We've been for I guess for twenty uh, years, twenty-two years. We've been in San Francisco uh, doing um, other events, but this is our creme de la creme every year. It just sounds incredible. You know, it makes me think of the columbarium event that Sarah Cahill um, curates every year where there are just musicians all over the columbarium in Oakland and how amazing that is. Gosh, I I just would so love to be there myself. Um, I am getting back to America on the 26th, so I may even be able to get there. Um, Let's hear a little bit about this incredibly immersive event, Joanne. Thank you. 
se to say that one of my favourite quotes from Edward Gorey is something like, life is intrinsically boring and dangerous at the same time. At any given moment, the floor may open up. It almost never does, but that's what makes life so boring. Does either of you have a favourite quote? A favourite quote of his. Well, I, I, I think I need to regurgitate the same one. I love the idea of looking at your own art and and taking it so lightheartedly and so campy that you call it nonsense. So uh, my work is literary nonsense is probably just it's the irony of it and the non-pretentious nature of it is I, I I just love that quote. I love that too, Mike, because for there to be nonsense, there has to be sense. Yeah, and what I about things like love, for instance, is that love is the reason, but love goes beyond reason. Um, anything from you, uh, Justin? Well, I... I... Two bits that, that come to mind with Edward Gorey is, you know, right along the lines of what we're saying is, uh, those who take this work too seriously, beware. And I think in summary of his character, he says, books, cats, life is good. <laughs> Can I add dogs to that? And um, ballet. So, yeah, you got to uh, add ballet to have, that. If, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll cons- consult the gory oracle for that one. But, yeah, yeah. For sure. I'm sure it's someplace in the anthology. Yeah. yeah. So can I just remind everybody, Friday night, the 26th, is the Edwardian Eve. Saturday is the Edwardian Ball. 
people are invited to experience the whole event of amazing and diverse programming. And I'm hoping to be there myself. This is Philippa Kelly, having had a wonderful time here on the arts with you all, sitting in for David Latulipe today from Australia. I am the resident dramaturg for the California Shakespeare Theatre, and it's been an honour to interview this wonderful group of artists. And let's close out now by going to something more serious, the BBC News. Thank you.